When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 361st episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most talented and respected actresses of her generation. She started in the business as a kid some 35 years ago and has worked steadily ever since. But it was only in the last six years that she began to receive the sort of major recognition that industry insiders have long felt she deserves. Indeed, in that relatively short time span, she has won four acting Emmys, each for different roles, tying Alfrey Woodard for most Emmys won over the course of a career by a black performer, the most recent coming earlier this year for her lead performance on Damon Lindelof's HBO limited series Watchmen, last year for her supporting turn in Barry Jenkins' film adaptation of James Baldwin's novel If Beale Street Could Talk, she won an Oscar, and now in late 2020, For her feature directorial debut, One Night in Miami, which imagines what took place when activist Malcolm X, singer Sam Cooke, football star Jim Brown, and boxer Cassius Clay hung out together in Miami on the night of February 25th, 1964, she is receiving Oscar buzz once again and is poised to become the first black female ever nominated for the Best Director Oscar. One of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World in 2019 whose 2020 has been even better, Regina King. Over the course of our conversation, the 49-year-old and I discussed how she wound up on a hit sitcom as a teen and why, after that show's run came to an end, she very nearly abandoned acting to become a dentist. Why, after establishing herself as a grown-up actress in films like Boys in the Hood, Jerry Maguire, and Ray, she began working much less in films and more on TV doing great work on shows like Southland, The Leftovers, and American Crime. Why, in the midst of her acting rebirth on projects like those, followed by Beale Street and Watchmen, she was focused as much on directing as acting, leading to One Night in Miami, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to have you. And always begin on this podcast with just a few biographical basics. If you can share for our listeners, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I'm born and bred in Los Angeles, California. And my mother is from Cincinnati, Ohio, and she is now a retired teacher. And my father's from Memphis, Tennessee, and he was an electrical engineer. He's no longer with us, but they met in LA. Got it. So you know, obviously you started acting professionally very young, but before you were getting jobs, I wonder if you can just share how the idea of acting even first kind of crossed your radar. I had come across one thing prepping for this where I saw that you were really impacted by Norma Ray, the movie, but you must have been so young when you saw this is a movie about unions yes. and all kind of tell me, is that is that true? Well, absolutely. <laughs> Norma Ray and Sybil. You know, okay. this is obviously, this is both of these. I think Sybil was always a television film, but Norma Ray, I was seeing it after it left the theater and it was on TV. So yes, I was very, very young watching it on, you know, KCOP, one of those, uh, Channel 11 or Channel 13 used to always have in our city on Saturdays or Sundays. I can't remember which one. Because one, one of them, it was the, um, uh, the masterpiece, like it, they would show, you know, Asian films, like, like the, the karate mm-hmm. films. And I think, I think it was called Kung Fu Masterpiece or something like that. <laughs> and then the, <laughs> the other day, they would always show some film that was, you know, it's having its television debut. And that's how I saw Norma Ray. And, uh, and that's how I saw Sybil. And I want to say I saw Sybil before Norma Ray, even though I believe Norma Ray came out before, I think. But I could be wrong. I just know it just blew me away that both of those people were Sally Field. That just was just like mind blown. And I could see how Sybil would really blow you yeah. away like that, because how many people was she in oh my that? god so, yes yeah. that, so i guess all of those people were selling <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> right so that planted the seed but i guess at that point you know do you go off and start taking acting classes well, or what do you it's do it's interesting because like you know like i i when i tell that story you know is is, is isn't it funny how and i hope other people feel like this and if not okay then i'm just the crazy one <laughs> but how like you'll tell the story and you're telling it in a way that definitely that was my influence of, of knowing that I wanted to act or that knowing that I wanted to, that I thought that there was something very powerful about being able to make people feel an emotion. So 
while I've told that story a couple times, I probably I feel like there might it might come off like a couple different iterations of it because <laughs> in all actuality, while that it did have that impact on me, at that moment wasn't when oh I immediately started taking acting lessons. It probably wasn't for um, you know a couple of years after that that I that I did, but. Definitely, I would do things like look in the mirror and see if I could make myself cry or like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, see if I can just laugh about nothing and if it, if it was believable and just laugh until I really was genuinely laughing. Like I would do little things like that. And my sister and I would do them together. So I, I had a, a great accomplice and she was younger, four years younger. So, you know, she's going to do what I told her to do anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so who is Betty Bridges? Betty Bridges. Now, there we go. Now, that is probably, Betty Bridges was probably the person who really un, unlocked that discovery that I had a few years ago watching Sally Field in, in Civil and Norma Ray. Um, she was our acting coach for years uh, up until maybe somewhere somewhere in the middle of 227. And, she, and you say R because your sister was also, yes. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she is Todd Bridges' mother. And she had this acting school called Cambridge Academy. And we were over a friend's house, one of my mother's friends, and we were outside playing and Betty lived up the street. And Betty was outside roller skating. And my sister and I were just like, you know, everybody's old when you're like, you know, uh, <laughs> 10 years old. So you're like, this old lady out here uh, roller skating. And, and so she uh, and she was a very useful woman. Nothing old about her, but to us, you know. So yeah. she came up to Raina and I playing outside and Something, I guess, about Raina and I made her, because we were with other kids, but she specifically, you know, started talking to us about, I really don't know how she started the conversation. I just know that quickly, you know, my sister went into stranger danger and went into running the house and <laughs> <laughs> got her mom. And what did your mom make of all this? Um, my mom was always a person that, in, that, as a teacher, always believed that performing arts and, and, and um, all, all arts definitely were a great complement to inspiring children, especially to think deeper and, 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 and kind of uh, explore more within yourself. So she's always was, was, was big with that, you know, all arts. So at that time, my sister and I had taken so many different types of classes, you know, whatever we would be interested in. She would, um, we, her only thing was you'd have to finish the whole thing that I signed up for, signed you up for. And we always went to like, whenever like the dance theater of Harlem would come to LA. And so we were already into that. And, and we used to recite poetry from Shel Silverstein's books. Uh, at home as a performance piece. So I think she kind of felt like, oh, 
this seems like a great outlet for the girls. Had Betty basically said to you guys and then to your mom, like, I see something about you that is promising or she was just trying to recruit business? (laughs) Uh, You may be a little bit of both. Maybe a little bit of both, (laughs) Uh, in all fairness. But I think her being Todd Bridges' mother made my mother feel like, you know, this is not a... Yeah, not a... Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right. Okay, so you start working with with Betty, and obviously it can't have been much longer after that that you are now prepared to go out for a professional audition. How do do you go from, you know, having an after-school activity or whatever to trying to go pro essentially. Oh, well, Betty also became our manager. I guess, I guess she really did see something. And so, Mm -hmm. uh, becoming our manager, you know, she, she would do more than just what we would do in our classes, which the classes were, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, just, just was such a wonderful foundation for me. I mean, I never, uh, other than Betty's classes and Art Evans coming in to do um, a, a lot of the class teaching as well, and Ed Cambridge coming in, the the, the three of them really, I mean, they they just gave me so much as uh, as teachers. Just at a young age, I just really took it all in, and because uh, B- Betty's um, academy was more of like a theater group. So we were always, you always had scene partners. You always had people that you work with. You always, when my sister and I first started, we were able to see the older people at the older, um, cause she had everything from kids to adults. So we would be able to see the teenagers and, and, and the adults studying lines together, preparing for auditions together. So we were, you know, put in that, just kind of plopped right into just such a rich environment for actors to be actors. Uh, mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. a combination of Betty doing, you know, preparation for auditions with us to just preparing with our Academy mates prepared us for auditions. So is it true or, or is this um, kind of lore that literally the first audition was the one that resulted in you being on this NBC sitcom. It was that actually the first? No, that definitely was not the okay. first. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> no. Because you were, what, 13 when yeah. that, that one yeah. came along? Yeah. Okay, no. so there have been a definitely few years. Definitely not the first. Yeah. We, and oh, another thing that I feel like was really good um, education or preparation, we did a lot of extra work. So, you know, to, to just be around Ricky Schroeder on Silver Spoons and Jason Bateman and Todd and, you know, watching Janet Jackson, you know, as you're just like background was really great. And to kind of help you understand the lay of the land, you know, like you could be really great at uh, performance, but not understand anything about where the camera goes or how, you know. You right, know. right. So at 13, you wind up auditioning and, and getting this this pilot for the part of Brenda on 227. And I just wonder, this ended up running for most of your teenage years. And also, obviously, you know, it was a big deal, probably made you very 
much more recognized than your average 13 or through 18 year old, all of that. Did you, you know, enjoy doing this? Was this something you were passionate about or was it sort of at a certain point, you know, you just hear all these stories about child actors where they're paying the rent or whatever it is. Was this something you wanted to be doing and we're having fun doing? Yeah, it definitely. This was not the situation where you see with a lot of kids where their parents are just pushing them to be an actor or whatever. That was not the case at all. You know, my mother, again, was just supportive of what we were into. And my mother never stopped working. I definitely enjoyed it. But it probably wasn't until I started going to college and I was going from uh, set from set to classes, sometimes back, that I realized, because I would say prior to that, I felt like, oh, I'm going to be a dentist or a flight attendant. <laughs> even, into, even into college, even after all those years of doing the sitcom, you were not thinking, I'm going to grow up and be an no, actor as an no. adult. It wasn't until I got to <laughs> USC and I was like, uh, yeah, I don't want to go to college. And <laughs> I think this acting thing may work out for me. And so <laughs> I, 227 was canceled. And then maybe a year after it was canceled, I was in, so my first year of college, I was back and forth in 227. And then my second year is when I was like, yeah, you know, I want to do this college wise. I want to really focus on showing people that I can, I'm, there's so much more in me than Brenda. I feel like the, the combination of, of, of not really in loving the college environment and all of the things that we used to do when I was in school, school, meaning at Cambridge Academy, I never got a chance to to employ that as Brenda on 227. Right. And I just think I hit a certain level of maturity that I realized it was a whole lot more in there. Whole lot more in the tank. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. yeah you got to do a little more. They need to see that you can <laughs> do a little more than mom, I'm going to my room. And, and that's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's just go back for one other thing about, about that show because – as I understand it, it would not have been on the air had the Jeffersons not been canceled right before because that freed up Marla Gibbs, who then became maybe the most valuable takeaway of your whole time doing that show. She was sort of a mentor, right? So what was it about her that you were able to carry with you as you then went on to the things that I'm going to ask you about in a minute when you leave school and go back to now act as an adult? It's interesting. When you talk about those years, you know, those years of 12 to 19, 20 or whatever, there's this is you're being influenced by people and, and things that are not your that are not in your peer group. And you're not even realized you're being influenced. And I think that was the case with Marla. I did not recognize how much of an influence she was until later on in life. Marla didn't come into her success as an actor until after, you know, her kids were, you know what I mean? Like she's just kind of an anomaly in so many ways, but witnessing that here was this woman from Detroit that 
you know, came here with her three kids, single woman, and then became an actor, you know, after all of these various jobs prior to that and discovering that within herself, that was having an impact on me. And I didn't realize it was having an impact on me as it was. And, and I, I really think maybe subconsciously knowing that story, having, having, having had a first row seat to witness the success of that probably, you know, you know, made me feel okay about going against my mother's wishes. In terms of leaving in school. In terms of leaving school, you know, like I said, my yeah. mother's a teacher. She wasn't happy. <laughs> yeah, she wasn't really happy about that, but she also was very supportive and felt, um, I never felt like my mother didn't believe in me. She believed in that, she believed in me enough to have my back with that decision. So it was important that she believed in you, but it was at least as important that casting directors believe that you could be somebody other than Brenda. And I want to just ask you to set up how it is that, you know, they did come to believe that, but also that your first three movies over a period of four years were all with this also very young filmmaker, John Singleton, who let's just say, starting with boys in the hood, that's his debut right on the heels of Rodney King he was only 23, ends up becoming the youngest and first black best director Oscar nominee ever. And, you know, for you, though, how did you even he you know, who was John Singleton at that point? And also, who were you? So how did you two how did you two wind up in front of each other? Yeah, yeah. I got to tell you, there was a little moment in there, Scott, that I thought I may not have made the right decision. Because I couldn't get an audition because everyone thought of me as Brenda. You know, they didn't really think that I had, uh, I would, you know, that I would be capable of doing anything beyond that. Even though my agent would try to push or whatever, that just people wouldn't see me. So there was a, 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 a about a year of like, whoa, well, yeah, maybe, maybe this wasn't the right call. And then got uh, um, uh, Jackie Carmen Brown, uh, was the casting director on uh, Boys in the Hood. And I, I, I believe, I, I, I think casting directors are amazing. And I think what makes casting directors amazing are the ones that like, are not just trying to go for names. They want to see who's the, who's the, the fresh talent, who is the unexpected choice, you know? And I think because that's the type of casting director she uh, is that she was willing from, to let me come in to read for um, Boys in the Hood. And I came in yeah. and she told me, because I shared with her, I believe that I did, used to go to USC. And so she told me, well, the director of this film actually is uh, a graduate of USC. And I was like, oh God. So I immediately was thinking, Oh, and I'm a dropout. This is not going to go well <laughs> at all. And uh, so I auditioned and I did maybe half the scene. And she was like, okay, that's enough. And I was like, oh, shit. And she said, no, 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 no. It was great. I want you to come back for the director and the producer. And I was like, oh, okay. Now, at that time, she had not recorded me. So I was not, you know, she just 
felt strongly to bring me back. And I want to say that there the callbacks like were going to be happening later that day or the next morning or something like that. So I came back. I believe she must have told John that I, I, I went to that, that Regina King is going to come back. And then he told her, yeah, I used to see her at campus on campus. She always looked mean, like she didn't want to talk to anybody. <laughs> Because I was just unhappy to be at school. I just, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, and, um, and he said she never came and hung out in the black section. She never, like, I was just trying to get school and go. I wasn't trying to. <laughs> so it's interesting right. that, you know, he kept, got to know me as a really fun person, but his yeah. perspective was that little girl from 227 is, <laughs> you know, not very friendly and has no interest to be around the black people at USC. <laughs> I had no interest to be around anyone at USC. Right, right, right. Well, and then there was another issue too, right? Because Shalika, they wanted, um, these are their words from what I understand, not mine, but they wanted, they weren't sure that you could, well, you said. Yeah, that I could be hood. Yeah. yeah I could be ghetto <laughs> enough. Yeah, they, they, didn't, they right. didn't think that. And that's why Jackie like just stopped me you know, like halfway through, because she was like, and and I think that's what threw me off, because I think I'm, I'm, I have the audition memorized, and she was reading with me, and I remember just a moment of her kind of going, and I didn't know, okay, well, that looks like a good thing, but keep going. So uh, <laughs> I think that the, that they were all shocked, and before I left the building, John came out and was like, Regina, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> And that movie, I mean, there's a whole generation of very talented people who came out of that movie and movie itself was way ahead of its time. And and so you have that experience. Two years later, you guys were back with Poetic Justice and it's you and Jen Jackson and Tupac and just a very different, uh, more, you know, romantic melodrama kind of thing. And then the year or two years after that, a third one, Higher Learning which this time you're you're sort of the sidekick with to uh Christy Swanson's character and this one's about prejudice on a college campus and I guess I just wonder you know to be working three times in five years three times in four years five years with one filmmaker and not with others it seems like you guys must have really had something special I mean it's so sad that John has left us so young but I guess maybe you can just talk about you know, what in your eyes made him somebody that you wanted to keep working with that much? Well, I think, you know, we absolutely had a connection and, 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 and during Poetic Justice is where we really had the opportunity to get to know each other. And he really, that was my first time getting to understand what a director does in preparation for a film because he welcomed me into that part of, of, of poetic justice. And um, I, I would think that that, I think that that really just kind of just, you know, really made the bond, w w the bond became a bond during that process. And I think my interests and my, my, my asking questions excited him, you know, and, and, and made him want to share more with me in the process. I had to audition for Poetic Justice and I feel like because I didn't uh, give him any pushback or anything with that, 
that just, uh, I think the respect level was elevated at that moment when I was like, oh yeah, I'll audition, you know, even though I felt like, you know, <laughs> you know, you should. <laughs> we just did boys. On the- yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, you should, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, in that playfulness, you know, uh, my willingness to respect the filmmaking process was, was, uh, I think attractive to, for him and his, um, willingness to want to share the filmmaking process with me was attractive to me. And then you just start talking about everything else in between. I don't think, I think just us being so young and, and, and being always, uh, you know, being black people, you're always on the fringe of things. You're never just right in the middle of it. And you, and you, and you have to kind of, you know, the, the John, you know, inspired by Spike Lee and, and obviously a bunch of other filmmakers. But I mentioned Spike Lee specifically because for us, it was like our first time seeing someone, I guess, break the rules. You know what I mean? And, and succeed you know, by doing that and telling stories that really spoke to us and that were just so like, huh, we, you know, you, you get those movies every now and then you get a coolie high or, you know, those type of films, but they're just little spurts here and th- little, but the, the, she's gotta have it. And those came out. That was like for us, you know, cause that, that, at that point we're at the age where we really, you know, and coolie high and stuff and car wash, and, and, you know, those type of films, you know, you're so young, you just, you know, seeing a movie when it comes on TV or something, you know. And and so the impact the Spike had on him, the, the impact the Spike had on us is just artists in the film, television industry, uh, film industry, really more specifically. I don't think that I really knew that 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 was a unique thing to do three films with the same person. It didn't seem it seemed like that. That's just what we're doing, you know. Well, let's um, if we can just briefly touch on, you know, just your main memory or whatever, uh, just kind of rapid fire of a few of these others that happen after that. you were with F. Gary Gray in, in Friday, which obviously has a cult following 25 years later. Uh, would you ever have imagined that when you were making it? I can't say that I could think that it wouldn't have been because it did feel like something I had never seen before. You know, when I read the script, <laughs> you know, I'm like, DJ Pooh wrote this. Whoa. <laughs> you know, it just it felt just like Boys in the Hood, you know, just like do the right thing. You know, it felt like something I'd never seen before, but it's a film for, you know, me. It's a film for us. So um, I did know that it was something special for, you know, people my age. Sure. A year after that, 96, you are Marcy Tidwell, the very assertive wife of Cuba Gooding Jr.'s Rod Tidwell in Jerry Maguire, which obviously you know, was a huge hit. And um, I believe you were pregnant or around that time you were, I'd read you were pregnant with your own child. And so anyway, just as you think back to that one, you know, that's an all time. Oh yeah. I was pregnant while I was auditioning. Yeah. Okay. And it's one of those things where all the beautiful things that come to mind about, you know, your child and 
if I was not pregnant while auditioning, I would have gotten the the role of um, that Loretta Devine had in Preacher's Wife. And if I had gotten that role, I wouldn't have been available to do Jerry Maguire. And um, because I was pregnant, uh, you know, Penny said, you know, just she just wasn't sure, you know, she, what if you deliver early, which I did. Um, <laughs> you know, I just don't want to take that risk. To the point she ran into my husband uh, at a party and was like, yeah, I wanted her for my film, but because he was telling her how much I love her and he was like, I yeah. wanted her for my film, but she had to go and get her knocked up. <laughs> and um, so if that, if I, if I wasn't pregnant. Could have been all different. Yeah. yeah. Two years after that, you are the ACLU lawyer married to Will Smith's character in Enemy of the State. This is just as I think he was really coming into being one of the biggest movie stars of our generation. Did you like working on that scale of a movie as opposed to more kind of character driven? I mean, not that it wasn't, but I, I guess it's just different. Absolutely. For a couple reasons. One, it was Will Smith and Gene Hackman. Like, you know, if I'm being completely honest, like the Gene Hackman was a bigger deal. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. and so yeah. just, I, I don't think that I would, again, I wouldn't say that I thought it was impossible, but I never considered that I could be in a film with Gene Hackman. Right, right. Oh my God. And I right. just kind of remember in the process, you know, talking to Tony Scott, who just, you know, God rest his soul, you know, John and, and Tony, man, both of them mm-hmm. made a really great impact in my life, you know. Um, and I remember talking to Tony saying, so we just can't figure out a, a way for Erica to have to have some moment with Gene's character. I mean, you know, <laughs> like he just comes over for some tea or something and then, you know, it's awkward. And I'm like, why is he here? You know, like you don't think it would make, so we would always kind of like joke about that, you know? Uh, um, well, so then, and obviously with all these, I'm having to jump over many things, but just to touch on some of the, the real big ones, I guess, you know, one of the next ones has to be Margie, the backup singer slash complicated lover of Ray Charles in Ray for Taylor Hackford. This is now 2004. You got probably the closest kind of reaction that, you know, up until Beale Street in terms of awards buzz kind of stuff for fil- for a film work, I think. Obviously, at that point, the world wasn't uh, quite quite ready to go there. But you, you know, I go back and read things that Kerry Washington and others have said. Um, I'm trying to remember who else was there. Were there? Were, we've had a few people from that movie who have been on the podcast and talked about just how blown away by you they were and i wonder what your you know memories are obviously uh with jamie fox at the middle of all that yeah that was it's so funny you know you taking me back down memory lane (laughs) there's just like you know the first memory i think of is that that was the first time i was away from my son you know and i was away Mm -hmm. from him for i think seven days and that 
I mean, I literally, like, I'm thinking of that feeling that I had then. I just was just, I knew when I took the role that, uh, yeah, you got to do this role. I knew that I was like, okay, yeah, you're going to be away. This, you can do it. But I just wasn't prepared for just emotionally how it would hit me to be away from him that long, you know, because I think up until then, maybe I may have spent the day away or something like that, but n- nothing more than that, you know. Um, you know, show films like In Me the Estate being a big film afforded me the opportunity to bring my son and my grandmother with me, you know. And so with Ray at that point, he was in school, so I didn't want to take him out of school. And uh, so that is one of the things that keeps, that stands out for me with that. And then the other thing was that Jim, Jamie was, while he had such a huge load to carry, he still was always so protective of, uh, I feel like everyone, but I'll speak specifically in my experience to me. And, you know, we had a couple scenes where, you know, I think I just had on a bra or panties or whatever, and, but, and we're in the bathroom. And in between every take, he would grab the shower curtain and cover me up. And I just thought that I was like, oh, my God, that's so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, now I don't know if it's connected to the fact that you'd had that experience where you really didn't like being away from your son. But after that, your number of movies that you were doing went down a lot and your number of TV projects went up a lot. And I'm going to mention those in a moment, but just was it the stuff about being away from home? Was it about the fact that I think in another interview at some point you said you started to get tired of being asked to play wives for a little while? Was that all kind of heading at the same time? Uh, No, the um, wives thing happened before that. And that was one of the things that was, so when I received the script for Ray, um, I was told, you know, you can audition for the Margie role, the wife, the role, and then also um, another role that, 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 that Anjanue Ellis uh, played. And so I immediately knew, yeah, the wife one was like, I don't, I'm not even reading (laughs) the script for that because that had happened. I was, you know, being asked to, while at that point it was very um, uh, assuring as an actor because I was being offered things opposed to always auditioning, while that felt good, I didn't want to keep playing somebody's wife, you know? So, Including even, right, I had seen, they wanted you to play Samuel L. Jackson's wife Samuel in Negotiator. Wife in that movie with him in, um, um, what's his name, uh, Kevin Spacey. Yeah, yeah, the Negotiator. So yes, you were, I was like. What is he, like 30 years older than you? Dude, and I love <laughs> me some Sam Jackson. Yeah. But I was like, yo, yeah, no. <laughs> um <laughs> So even though I was going to be auditioning for Ray, I was just really excited about the opportunity to no longer be, um, to, to, to possibly break out a wife world. And, yeah, yeah. and, and you know, uh, uh, when, with the wife world, it was also a, a really great thing because it was my first grown up characters. So I was enjoying that, but uh, again, felt like I needed more. And that, so 
really the TV came from the experience of being away from Ian from, mm-hmm. for, for that period of time. And then I did um, uh, Miss Congeniality 2, I think was after that. And it was in Las Vegas. So I, I was able to go home every weekend you know, or, or my husband and, and, and my son would come. So it wasn't as bad, but it still just felt like, yeah, I don't really want to, you know, I don't want to do this. You know, I've missed a couple games, you know, and just, it just didn't feel right. You know? So that's how the, we, we, we actively chose to pursue TV. Right. So that I think really most notably got underway with, with the sixth season of 24, where you're the uh, legal counselor for the Islamic American Alliance. That was a part written for you from what I read. And then a couple of years after that is when Southland as the homicide detective, Lydia Adams really seems to have been the turning point that started this whole chapter of uh, the last amazing decade or so for you. Uh, this was a show that ran for five seasons, one on NBC, which then canceled it, then four on TNT, which then canceled it. But the people in the business watched it, even if ratings overall were not what one might have hoped. And I guess I just want to ask, I'm going to just mention a few other things and then ask you to just comment. But a part that was not written specifically for a black actress, here you are, you go on there, it's a in terms of TV critics, in terms of people that you know really see everything and and follow the business. They were eating it up. They loved it, and then it was just getting overlooked by by networks, by viewers, and by Emmy voters. Which is why I want to ask you if that may have fueled or or what else fueled this letter, which is going to be studied probably years from now because it did, I think, slowly light the fire under people's asses that may have started uh, to change things. This was in 2010. You write a letter to an open letter in the Huffington Post to attention of the TV Academy, basically, people that give out the Emmys, just calling them out about the quote unquote whiteness of their year after year after year nominations and winners. What in your memory prompted you to do that? And what was your what was the reaction as you remember it? What prompted me to, I would say that it was years of things. And then you just kind of have this, you know, straw that broke the camel's back moment. And the straw that broke the camel's back moment was that I woke up uh, the day after the Emmys and two things. The night of the Emmys, one of our cast members from 227, Elena Reed, had passed away. And she was not in the memoriam. And that was like, okay, that hit me kind of emotionally. But then I was like, well, maybe because she used to be on uh, Sesame Street. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe they put her in the daytime Emmy thing. You know, so I was just going to, I'm going to let that go. And even to the point where I so didn't want to open that hole up so much that I decided that that's what they did. And I'm not going to research if they did or not. I'm just going to believe that that's what happened. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I went to sleep accepting the, 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 that and knowing that even it may not be the case, but that's what you're going to do so that you can 
to get through. You know? And just to clarify, you did not attend that Emmys, I believe, no. right? Because they did not yeah. nominate you yeah. for some of the best work you've done. But anyway, please continue. <laughs> no, I did not. And, and I, that was not even something that was, uh, you know, on my mind, really. Right. I, I, it was really more Elena not being recognized. And then I woke up the next morning and I see a picture of Regina Wesley and it says Regina King at the something, something Emmy Awards. And that's when I was like, so these motherfuckers didn't even nominate me. <laughs> and then, <laughs> so I just, yeah, yeah. I went, oh, Sam Jackson. <laughs> and was just like, this is ridiculous. So then I started thinking about all of the performances that I have loved growing up. And, 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 and I think probably because we were in this age of internet now, mm -hmm. we are deep in yeah. it at this point. And so I just started looking people up who I loved and seeing how many people were like from Felicia Rashad to, you know, to, to Martin Lawrence on the, you know, that, that had given, amazing performances that no matter if you were white, black or whatever, you would talk to the people and people would be like, Oh my God, I love Claire Huxtable. Oh my God. I love Martin. You know what I mean? Martin. And so, uh, Martin Payne, I think. And, and just how great Tisha Campbell and Tashina Arnold were on that show and never recognized. And then I thought about George Lope, you know, so I'm looking people up and I'm like, <laughs> and I'm not seeing where these people have been nominated, if they have been nominated, if they had, most of them had not, had never won. And it was just like, wow. So I kind of felt like I got, I got to put this somewhere. And I think I also was feeling like, you know, I didn't, I've had conversations within private conversations about lack of representation, lack of storytelling. Um, and in eighties, the eighties and the nineties, was a time where we were starting to have more films and television shows with, you know, our, our voices. And then it just went away, you know? So, I, you know, so it's a lot of residual stuff going on. And mm -hmm. so I kind of, I decided to write the letter and I also knew, you know, I called uh, my publicist, you know, who's on the phone now and my agents. And I said, you know, I've written this letter. I don't know who it needs to go to, but I, I feel like I, I, I need to say this out loud. And I know that it'll probably kill my chances of ever being nominated, but they weren't fucking nominating me anyway. So right, I kind of right. went there with it and everyone was supportive. Everyone, my, my entire team was like, we're behind you with it. And, you know, I, I won't lie a couple of times before I put in send, I was like, <laughs> A little hesitant, right. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, so put on the big girl panties and hit sin. Well, fortunately, you were very wrong about them never nominating you again because we'll we'll come to that. But uh, just, I guess, the other thing that may have really changed in your mind during the run of Southland was that you first started getting serious about directing because maybe it had been something that occurred to you before, but you actually started doing it, I think initially with music videos, then with an episode of Southland. And then if you can talk about, you know, literally applying to 
and getting accepted in and going through the ABC television network's directors program, you know, and yeah, you've since done episodes of Scandal and This Is Us and Shameless and Good Doctor and Insecure. And it looks like, you know, somebody could look at that and think, oh, well, she, you know, she's Regina King. She just marched into directing, you know, she knew there knew some of the actors or whatever. Can you just break down as we approach the present with your feature directorial debut shortly? Just it's not you don't just cruise in and get to direct. And you did not do that. No, no, not at all. And, you know, um, I just had really I, I, I had a really great support group or or people that were confident in me saying that I want to direct my experience on Southland with Chris Chulak. It definitely started there. I think him, I was the first, cause all of the actors kind of, kind of followed suit after I kind of set the tone and went to him on the side and was like, can I shadow you? And so when I started showing up during, you know, Michael and Ben and Sean scenes, they were like, what, What's going on? I was like, I'm, I'm shadowing Chris. <laughs> so I think that in a lot of ways, I did something that was outside of my comfort zone that, you know, my brothers, because uh, I look at them as my brothers, thought, saw, was like, wow, you know, well, we should do that. So then everyone else kind of started shadowing. And I think Chris looked at that as like a leadership uh, quality. And the fact that, you know, when people are willing to hang around when their scenes are done or come to work on days that they, they don't have any scenes uh, shows that 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 was um, uh, something that I, I was very serious about and it wasn't a vanity thing. And then um, I'm trying to remember how I ended up with Paris Barkley. What, what, what did Chris mention? Maybe, and he may have but uh, suggested that I talk to Paris Barkley and I sent him a video that I had done and he'd watched it without the music. And so he said, you told a story here. You actually, I, I, you know, I know what this, I have not heard the song, but, and so he uh, asked me these really like hardcore questions and he came to the conclusion that it's that is like Chris, that, this was not a vanity thing. I really wanted to direct. And he said, what you need to do is you need to let the world know that you're not doing this just for namesake. And so he suggested that I would apply to these programs. So he sent me um, and the number to um, a woman named Regina Rinder, who was working at the DGA at the time. And she sent me a list of all of the different uh, directing programs that different networks had. And at that time, I was just in awe of Shonda Rhimes and Scandal. And uh, at this point, she had private practice and Scandal, both on television. So I just felt like the ABC program is the one I need to sign up for um, <laughs> because uh, I want to shadow on a Shonda Rhimes show. <laughs> you yeah. know, I want to direct a Shonda Rhimes show. So it was very intentional. I didn't uh, apply for any of the other programs. I applied for the ABC program. You have to write a, 
uh, a, a little small kind of mission statement on why you think that you'll be a great director and you know you meet all of these different people that are part of the ABC program and they just start whittling down and, and eliminating applicants and the, 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 till it's down to like 14 people and um, I I think that during all of those interviews to get in the program I think they un, they could see that I felt like I had the ability to shadow on shows and not be a distraction and in you know that I could go into the woodwork and pick up things and um, Private Practice was the first one that I did. And, oh, gosh, who's the showrunner on there? His name is Mark Tinker. But the show got canceled the first day that I was there to shadow. And oh, so he told me, you know, if you don't want to, to do it. And I was like, no, no. You know, I, wanna, I want to, you know, take this. So I was shadowing Karen Gaviola. And um, I, I stayed throughout the whole thing. And he brought me in at the end. And he said... Just what I've seen, I, I, you, you, you really want to do this. You, you, it is not about uh, you trying to, uh, you know, put your name in the hat and just, you know, hope it sticks. You really want to do this, but our show is not going to continue. So I can't give you a, a, uh, a, an, an assignment, but I want to introduce you to Tom Verica. And Tom Verica was the director, producer on Scandal. And because he's an actor, director, you know, mm-hmm. he was an actor first. He just he just welcomed me in, and I, and I uh, shadowed him. Um, Tom just really helped me to understand how you can use your skills as an actor to help the actors that you're directing. And um, he is just he's he's as I progress as as, as a director. You know, he was right there with me when I was shooting my first pilot and, and would always, he's just always believed in me and just yeah. sometimes just need those moments. So all of those Paris, Chris, Tom, you know. Yeah. So in that same period, since you've been getting into directing, you've obviously had what is sort of like a renaissance of acting as well. And it's not, I don't know that it's uh, that you're better than you've always been, but you've maybe had de- you know, opportunities that have been better that have led to other, I don't know, I'll, I'll leave it to you, but just to listen, list them for, for listeners, uh, you know, the second season of the leftovers where you have some of the best scenes I think you've done, especially that one in the episode lens, that nine minutes with Carrie Coon is hard to top. Then you've got these three installments of John Ridley's anthology series, American crime, where you're Emmy nominated for each one twice uh, each time playing totally different. I mean, this is like the old twilight zones where you'd see Jack Klugman or somebody in five different roles over the course of the years. And just amazing. That's the same person. Seven seconds on Netflix, a show that was great, but gets canceled. And then you went, then you win another Emmy. I mean, not many people have won an Emmy for a canceled show. And that leads up to Beale street where I know that Barry Jenkins is coming off of Moonlight and, you know, you're in the midst of directing and hadn't done a movie in like four years. And suddenly this opportunity presents itself. And obviously uh, you made the right call to to do it. I mean, again, some of the best stuff you've done, I think about those Puerto Rico scenes and just 
in the mirror, dialogue for you, getting ready, all of that, um, and obviously wind up with an Oscar. So just as we, I, uh, you know, these are the last two or three, just can't gloss over uh, Beale Street. So let me just ask you, as you think back, I mean, it's not that long ago, but that was a uh, kind of a game changer, right? Uh, sure. I mean, you know, I think that having it been that long since I'd come, you know, uh, had done a film, you know, that, uh, was, um, I think what made it even more special. And I, 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 whether it's TV or film, you know, I'm, I'm looking to do things where I feel like, uh, the filmmaking experience is going to be collaborative. The television experience, the storytelling experience is going to be collaborative. And, you know, in, in that process, I learned so much just being around Barry. And I would say that a lot of the things that uh, I experienced felt uh, while doing a film was familiar, felt brand new. In, in, a, in a lot of ways. And it made me go, ah, oh, yeah, Is, I, I need to do film again, you know, and made me even more excited watching Barry and working with Barry about, you know, being a film director. And, 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 and it, it was a confirmation for me that all of this work that I'd been doing in TV as a, as a director with the intention of it being in preparation for the first film, I, I feel like all of those hours of episodic directing and then working with Barry even more so helped me be more prepared for One Night in Miami. Right. And then the last thing before One Night in Miami is obviously got to talk about Watchmen, where first time we've ever seen a black female superhero essentially at the center of a, of a TV program. You have said that the inspiration for your performance was, quote, every black woman that ever was, close quote, which feels like that must that must feel like a lot of responsibility to uh, shoulder to have to represent. But at the same time, you know that you knew that you have Damon Lindelof from Leftovers coming back to you, which is literally something I don't think he's ever done with another actor. As a rule, he says he just tries not to work with somebody over uh, more than once, but couldn't couldn't resist doing that with you in this eerily timely and prescient and all of that, you know, this was a phenomenon, most Emmy nominated program of the year. Did you have any idea what you were kind of getting into aside from the fact that it would be cool to kick some ass? Yeah. Yeah. I think it more than anything, it was what I, the idea that I had that I was getting into was the opportunity to kick some ass <laughs> and uh, Damon's entry point uh, into, into, this the, the the as as Dave Gibbons says Damon's extrapolation of Watchmen. I, I knew that having Nikki at the helm was going to always uh, make sure that it was grounded because I I did I had not read the the comic book before, but I did have those concerns that I think anyone who's never really worked with green screen or anything like that a lot that, you know, am I, how am I going to do when I have to act towards things that aren't there and just having the conversation with Nikki and her explaining the visual approach made me feel like, okay, this is, 
this is different. And then more than anything, my conversation with Damon and how he answered all my questions going in. Let me, I, 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 although I did not know what the end game was with Watchmen, um, I was very clear that he was very much aware that while this was from a comic book, how necessary it was to tell this story. And I was just on board with that. No, in the crystal ball, I didn't know that this was going to be the outcome, but just as the scripts would come, I would go, Ooh, okay. We dig in deep. All right. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. Well, and that brings us now to what has got to feel like a, a big, big milestone after all the stuff we've talked about with leading up to directing, to have your feature directorial debut with One Night in Miami here, which Kemp Powers, who had written the play and then the screenplay, he's described it as like the Black Avengers. Um, I wonder for you, you know, how did it cross your radar and what was it that made you want to try to make this the one that you're, you know, your first as a, as a feature film director? Yeah. Well, I was looking to do a film that was a love story with a historical backdrop. And uh, I explained that to my agent, Harley. And so he, this, he brought, he sent this to me. And while, when I was discussing that, I was thinking more romantic, this no doubt, answered what I was looking for. And I, and I uh, felt like this was a very private conversation that was happening that could happen publicly. And in my 30 plus years of working, one thing that I do know is that when you, um, this is my first one out, I should play to my strengths. And my strength is as an actor. And it was a piece that it was attractive, the actor in me was attracted to it. Like if, you know, if I was a male uh, actor, I would have, I would have probably cut off my pinky toe to come in and, 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 you know, play one of the, which of the, which of the four would you have most wanted to play? Probably Malcolm or Sam. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I just felt like while we've seen uh, Muhammad Ali in films and we've seen Malcolm X in films and in amazing performances, I just don't feel like what Kemp, that we've seen them this vulnerable. That's the beautiful thing about the Black men in my life that I know. They are strong and vulnerable at the same time. And so often in our stories, we just see uh, the black male character, either this or that and not layered. And I felt like that this is an opportunity for me to take the love letter that I received, Kim writing uh, about the black man's experience and being able to be part of telling that story. I felt, I just felt like there was no one. I just felt like I was the one to tell the story. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I didn't, I really didn't even bat an eye towards it. I just immediately after I read the script, I called and I was like, okay, so what do I have to do? You know? <laughs> and they're like, oh, you gotta, you gotta, you know, they didn't say audition, but basically it's the same as auditioning. Right. Tell them what you see, what your vision is. Right. Well, the last question I promise is just this. I mean, on the one hand, you're tackling questions in this movie that are things that, you know, we're talking about it's it's we were talking. I'm sure people were talking about it decades earlier. In fact, we we see some of those questions about how an artist, a black artist deals with 
you know, a white industry at that time, which shown up now in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, for example. And it's all that's decades earlier now in yours. You know, is it better to control the subject matter or own the content and all that stuff? Some of these things that are timeless and yet at the same time and sadly timeless, but yet at the same time, the world that you were making the movie while you were making the movie is a lot different than the world that the movie's now coming out into because of George Floyd and the reaction to that and all of the things that, you know, where people are actually maybe outside of the black community thinking more about issues about race and how we, you know, just looking at things differently than if they had seen this movie a year ago. So I guess I, I just want to close by asking you, do you think that this current climate is going to affect the way people receive the movie? Is there something specific you want them to walk away from it thinking or doing just as you send your baby out into the world? What is it that uh, you want to, you want to send it, uh, you know, how you hope it will be received? I guess two things that I hope people will walk away understanding is that the conversations that are happening in this film, that they were happening in 1960s and they were happening in the 1950s and 1940s and they are happening now in 2020. So I hope that people recognize that and understand that this was not dialogue written to, because this play was, written a long time ago. This was not dialogue written specifically to address what's happening now. This is dialogue that was written because this is, in fact, the sentiment and the facts that exist in America and has always existed. And it's part of the American fabric. And my hope is that people recognize like, damn, yeah, that's 1964. You know, that because, you know, with black people is speaking to the choir, you know, that, that this is every black, black black people who will see this film will go, yeah, mm-hmm, you know, <laughs> and, and hopefully they still will enjoy it and, 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 and get something out of it. But in when speaking to the audience as a whole, black and whatever else you may be, we so often as Americans, black or white, black or white, because that's kind of the history of our country uh, and, and how our country was built. I hope that that they leave and it's a call to action. You know, how can we really change the systems? You know, our whole judicial system, our whole, it's this, you know, the, the, there's a, a really interesting thing for us. We, 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 when we started to have some successes and you start to see, when I say we as, as a black people, some of us have become complacent because you don't have to deal with some of the systems as much as people in different economical places. And, and when you're, you really feel the system in your neck when your, your, your economics, your finances are, you're struggling. And it, it's very apparent how things have been set up against you. But we've become complacent as a people, as, Ameri- as an American people. I'm putting this on all of us. I'm, I feel like we all have to take responsibility. By no means am I 
when I say take responsibility, I mean like of what I can do uh, from here on out. How can I use my influence? And because I'm not a great orator or anything like that, I can use my art, you know, that way. So I hope that um, it is a call. That's a long way of saying that, you know, I hope that this can serve as some uh, bit of uh, a call to action, you know, understanding that what these men represented then and, and what they inspired and how they still inspire and they're not even here, what we can do when we're here. Well, congratulations. And it's, I'm excited to see whatever you do in front of or behind the camera. I really appreciate you doing this. And um, I know our listeners are going to really have enjoyed this opportunity to go deep with you. So thanks so much for doing it. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.